0: Hey, everybody, I'm so glad you're here today to worship together and Merry Christmas before we get there. Uh, Next week will be after, so I can't say it then, right? So, Merry Christmas now. Um, We are in the middle of our Christmas series called Searching, and today we're talking about searching for a king. And I want to talk about the cost of searching for King Jesus. And uh, before we get into that, I saw an article about a, a guy, uh, Jeff Murphy, he's 53 years old, uh, who went hiking up in Yellowstone National Park. Has anybody ever been out to Yellowstone National Park? Okay, um, that, That's sort of a bucket list kind of thing for me. But uh, he disappeared in the summer of 2017. Park investigators found his body on June the 9th. He had fallen off of a 500-foot uh, peak, Turkey Pin Peak. So if you go up there, make sure you be careful around that. Uh, but he stepped into a chute, and he uh, just fell off, and he died. But he wasn't just out there hiking. Here, here's the deal. He was looking for a treasure. It was a box of gold and jewels that was estimated to be worth up to $2 million. It had been buried somewhere somewhere in the Rocky Mountains by this eccentric millionaire named Forrest Finn. Anybody heard this story about this guy? Now, Finn is an art dealer, and he's a millionaire. He's in his 80s. You know, maybe when you get to your 80s, I don't know what happens. But he lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and in his self-published memoir, Finn included a poem that supposedly would lead someone to the treasure that he hid in the mountains. And according to John Burnett's report, he's with NPR, this was back in 2016, he wrote, the ornate Romanesque box is 10 by 10 inches and weighs about 40 pounds when loaded. I think there's a picture of the box and what was put in the box. Finn was has only revealed that it is hidden in the Rocky Mountains somewhere between Santa Fe and the Canadian border at an elevation of about five, above 5,000 feet. It's not in a mine, a graveyard, or near a structure. Now here's the sad part. Murphy is the fourth man to die while searching for this treasure. This box would eventually be found by a 32-year-old medical student in December of 2020. Now, here's the deal. We're all searching for something in life that we value. We want to find that treasure that brings us joy and happiness, prosperity and peace, love and companionship. But often, what we think will bring all of that to us doesn't. It brings heartache and pain. What we think is going to make us happy actually imprisons us. Like those searching for that treasure in the mountains, we lose our footing and we come crashing down. As that old country song goes, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. Some of y'all know that song. Now, Jesus and I believe we're here because we believe this, is the true source of joy and purpose in our lives. And in this very familiar Christmas story that we're going to look at today, we find some very wise men who made a commitment to search and find a new king. And their journey is reflective of our journey. And what we discover is this, that the king of our life deserves our total devotion. Would you agree with that? The king of our life, Jesus Christ, deserves our total devotion. Well, what does total devotion mean? That's what we're going to talk about today. In Matthew chapter 2, we read the story of the magi or the wise men. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, I want you to think about what it cost these wise men, these magi, to go searching for this king. Somehow, we know, they learned that there was a king that was being born. And in order to get there, it was going to require a commitment on their part. But what did that commitment entail? Well, first of all, it, it required time. You see, the, These wise men, these magi, gave about two years of their life in search of this king. We know that they came from a long distance. Scripture teaches that they came from the east, which most theologians would believe would be Babylon. Now, as we learn about who these magi were in that culture, according to Mark Moore and His commentary. We believe that they are scholars who studied astrology and astronomy, as well as other areas of study like medicine and math and natural sciences. So they were literally wise men. They were also probably influencers in the Medo Persian Empire, they were often political or religious advisors who were instrumental in setting up new kingships. Now think about that. (laughs) If that's the case, then we can understand why Herod would be a little concerned when these guys show up, when they had traveled to Jerusalem and asked about where this new king was. Now apparently, again, They had seen some kind of unusual phenomenon in the stars. We don't know what it was exactly. um, But they believed that whatever it was that they were witnessing was informing them that a new king was coming to Bethlehem. Or they didn't know Bethlehem. They just knew the area. And so... They searched. Now, recently, astronomers, with the help of computers, have tried to figure out what it was the Magi saw. And through uh, all of their computer calculations, they did find that back in 6 BC, there was an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces. Now, that only happens once every 800 years but it took place three times in 6 BC. It happened in May, in October, and in December. A year later, Mars would align with them. Now, obviously, all this meant something to them. It doesn't mean anything to me, but it meant something to them. Now, none of this can explain the phenomenon of them following a star, and it sitting over the house where they were trying to go to, we we don't really understand how that happened unless we believe in miracles. Do you believe in miracles? Okay. Again, we don't know exactly how long it took them to travel to Jerusalem. We do know that a trip from Babylon to Jerusalem would have been about 400 miles. They didn't have cars or airplanes, Remember? But if they followed the star, we can assume they would have to travel at night. So we can imagine it might take a little bit longer traveling at night. If they rode on camels, it could take two or three weeks to make that trip. If they went by foot, it would take a little longer. We know that the star appeared to them about two years before they arrived. Now remember, in Herod's questioning of them, he found out the exact time the star had appeared. And when Herod gave orders to kill the baby boys in Bethlehem, we know that he specifically said any boys who were two years old and younger. Why? Because that was in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So if it took about a month to travel from Babylon to Jerusalem, why two years to get there? Well, I'm sort of guessing, because the Bible doesn't explain all this, but I'm guessing that they had to study, and they had to figure this out, and it would take time for them to do that. They didn't want to just hop on a camel and head out. They were trying to figure out what this phenomenon meant. But they also did not have a map, right? They didn't know exactly where they were going. They were, again, just following the star. And when they got to Jerusalem, they were seeking information. They figured someone should know where this new baby king was born. Where is the child who has been born a king? That's the question they ask of King Herod and his people. We also know that they did not arrive on the night of his birth. Now, apparently, Mary and Joseph were actually living in a house by the time they arrived. They were still in Bethlehem. We don't know why they stayed in Bethlehem. Perhaps they figured if they went back to their home, Mary could be treated scornfully by the community because she had a child so soon after their wedding. But by the time the Magi got there, Mary and Joseph and the baby were settled into a house. Now this does remind us that the wise men and the shepherds weren't all there at the same time. So our nativity scenes, and they're beautiful, and I'm not saying... Throw out the wise men, I'm not saying that. But um, they weren't there at the same time. All this to say that the magi, to search for this king, took much time out of their life. Time and effort went into searching for this new king. Again, at least two years of their lives were dedicated to that search. A long journey was required. But they were not just willing to dedicate their time to the search. They also brought gifts. They did not want to come empty-handed. They're going to see a king. And so they came prepared to honor the king with the gifts. They brought gifts that would have been fairly common in their country. They were expensive gifts. Three gifts are mentioned. Now, I do want to say this because I think we make assumptions. We three kings, okay? There's nothing in the Bible that tells us there were three magi. They had three gifts, but that doesn't necessarily mean there were three wise men. There could have been more. There could have been at least two. We know there were at least two. We don't know their names. However, tradition has provided the names Gaspor, Melchior, and uh, Balthaspar. I can't even say his name. And that's why the Bible doesn't have it because the Bible only has names that you can pronounce. (laughs) Now, Now, these names don't come from biblical texts. This is a tradition. The Bible also does not get into the significance of the gifts. Again, tradition and some theologians have postulated on this idea. The gold, according to them, would represent the fact that Jesus was king. If a guest were to visit a king in that time and culture, often they would bring a gift befitting a king. And gold is one of those things that has always been Uh, a favorite, an expensive gift, uh, not a common gift, that would have been fitting for a king. Frankincense. Many have thought that that was a symbol of his priestly role. We know that Jesus's role did go beyond that of king. Did, Did the wise men understand this? I don't know if they did or not. But he is also a high priest of God. Frankincense would often be used in the temple for ceremonial purposes. Myrrh was, according to some, a symbol of the death that Jesus would experience. Myrrh was often used for embalming rituals. The magi were willing to dedicate their time and their gifts to this new king. But even more importantly, they risked their life. Now these men risked their lives, even though they were very wealthy and influential guys, they still risked something in this journey. The current king, King Herod, didn't really like other people stepping up and saying, Uh, They wanted to be king, or they knew about a new king. So he was not happy to hear this idea that a new king was born. And he was not a person that you would want to mess with. Now, if you think about King Herod and his lust for power and his brutality, it is obvious. Now, I don't know that the Magi understood this when they went to him, but he had a reputation for killing whoever got in his way or whoever he thought would get in his way. He killed two of his own sons. He had his wife, Miriamne, put to death. He had her mother murdered as well. So this was not a nice guy. And after the Magi escaped, he ordered that all these little boys in Bethlehem be slaughtered. Now, If he would do those things, what were these magi to him? Nothing. Now we know, according to the text, that they were warned in a dream not to go back to him. And so uh, they knew that he had tried to deceive them into telling him where the baby was so that he could not go worship Jesus but go kill Jesus. We know what his intentions were. And so instead of going back to Herod, they went home in a different direction, and Herod was furious when he found out. And if he could have gotten his hands on these guys, believe me, he would have had them put to death. But instead, he just had those baby boys killed. He just had those baby boys killed. What kind of person does such a thing? Now, we know that Bethlehem was a much smaller village at that time than it is today. Probably the number of Babies, baby boys that were two years old and under were not in the thousands or hundreds. In fact, Mark Moore suggests that there was more like 20. But that doesn't diminish the horror for those 20 families that lost their babies. Those families suffered because Herod wanted to kill Jesus. It's unimaginable. But this brought to Matthew's mind in Jeremiah 31, 15. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That was prophecy and it was fulfilled in that day. Now, these wealthy, highly educated and influential men humbled themselves And even risk their lives in their search for a king. And I want to ask you something today. What does your search for King Jesus cost? What does my search for Jesus cost? Maybe even the question is, who's going to be king over our life? I mean, something will rule us, right? You know this. We have a master, some master. We're going to serve a master. Now, there are a lot of different masters. It could be our money. It could be possessions. It could be a person. It could be ourselves. We could sort of put ourselves on that throne. But you know, Jesus wants to be on that throne. Y'all know that, right? King Jesus wants to be the Lord and Savior of our life. But he also warned us to count the cost. What does that mean? What will it cost to follow Jesus? Well, I would suggest to you the same thing it cost those magi, time. What time do you give your king? Think about your average day. There's a chart on the screen here that shows what an average day was like for most adults back in 2014. Does this reflect what an average day for you is like? Um, of course, sleeping and working are going to take up most of our time if, if we're in that you know, 18 to 65 age group where we're working full time. But what about the other time that's available? Think about how much time you spend with God on a daily basis. Do you set aside some time to read His Word? Do you set aside time for prayer? Do you talk with God throughout the day? You see, even when you're at work, you can still be talking to God. You can still be thinking about God. In fact, I would suggest we can worship God all day long, right? How much time do you spend in worship? It's the only time you worship when you come to church on Sunday morning. And if you don't come to church, Do you worship at all? Now, I don't want to be legalistic about this, but I do want you to think about the time you spend with your king. It should be something we desire to do because we love our King Jesus. He invites you to come to him. That's an amazing truth. King Jesus invites you to come into his presence on a daily basis. In James 4, 8, we read, Come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here's the thing. He knows we're sinners, and yet He still invites us to come. How much time during your day do you spend thinking about God, talking to God, telling others about God? If you want to break down your day... What would it reflect about your relationship to your king? Just as the Magi gave their time, and they also gave their gifts, we can also bring gifts to our king. Think about the gifts. Now, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't need any gift from me. (laughs) He doesn't need it, right? And and I don't know about you, but have you ever found it hard to buy gifts for some people? Some people that seem to have everything that they need. What are you going to buy them? Especially at Christmas time. I mean, it is really hard. I know that giving cash or a, a gift card seems so impersonal, right? But what are you going to do for somebody that has everything? Well, what is it that we can give to Jesus? He's got everything. He needs, well, but He wants to be pleased with us. And I think there are several things Scripture indicates we can give that will please Him. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10-11, to we read, Each of you should, get, should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do uh, so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So we can give the gifts that God has instilled in us. For instance, our talents and ability. We're all born with some God-given talents and abilities. And we're also born without some talents and abilities, right? I mean, there are some people that are just natural athletes. Natural athletes. I learned years ago, uh, I had to have, uh, I messed up my knee playing basketball, and I, I thought my, of myself as an athlete. You know, I, I, back then I was in fairly decent shape and and I went to the doctor, and he asked me what I did. And then he said, well, if you were an athlete, I would say we should operate. But since you're not, I mean, that, that really hurt my feelings. I, I, it still bothers me even today. But, you know, there are some people that are just natural athletes. They are so gifted and skilled. There are others who are just naturally artistic. Have you ever been around somebody like that? They can draw, they can paint, they can uh, create poetry, they can write music. I mean, th- th- this is something beyond what the average person can do. Others are drawn to uh, topics or skills of study like mathematics and history and science. Now, this doesn't mean that those who are gifted in those ways don't have to work to sharpen those skills, but it does mean that God gave them the skills. They were born with these natural abilities. I was born with certain skills. I'm still trying to figure out what they were, but Christy will tell me. How I use them is up to me, right? You're born with certain abilities. How you use them is up to you. Am I going to be selfish in the way I use them, or will I use them to benefit others to the glory of God? If you want to give God a gift that will please Him, use the gift He gave you to honor Him. Now, isn't that what any father would like? When a dad watches his child playing ball, and look, Leon, you call a lot of games out there. You probably hear dads yelling from the sidelines all the time. When, when a dad is, or a mom is watching her child play, and they hear someone bragging on their child. Man, what a great play, blah, 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 blah. What does the mom or dad say? That's my kid, you know. They might not say it out loud, but they're thinking, that's my boy, that's my girl. When somebody says, he or she is just a chip off the old block. You know, hopefully that's a positive thing. (laughs) But people are honoring the parent for the talent and the skill of the child. So if you want to give God a gift that will please him, live in such a way that people will say, you're just a chip off the old block. You are your father's child. Now, some of those gifts are spiritual gifts. God has also given us these spiritual abilities that we use along with those talents. In Romans twelve six 6-8, we read, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So, we got this list. Prophesying, which really is not really saying that you're foretelling the future. It is more saying proclaiming the Word of God. So if that is your gift, go out there and do it for all it's worth. Serving, humbly being a blessing to other people. Teaching, the ability to influence others with the knowledge that you have of God encouraging the ability to lift up others' spirits, giving generously, meeting the needs of others, leading to influence people to follow you in your search for Jesus. Mercy, when you don't repay evil with evil, this is the spiritual ability to not seek revenge. Now, this is not a comprehensive list of all the spiritual gifts, but it is a pretty good sample of the gifts that God wants us to use in serving Him. And if you want to bring a gift to honor your king, consider the spiritual gifts He has given you. How are you using those gifts to honor your king? And then there's one other gift, and that uh, finances, the resources we need to live life with. Now, do you believe God has provided you with the resources that you have? That's a big question. Now, if you think, well, I've gone out and I've earned it all and i use it however I want to and you don't give God any of the glory for it, well, you'll have to deal with God later. But God has provided you with the health and the ability to work and and be able to produce. He wants us to have a good work ethic so we can earn a living. Something's going wrong in our culture right now where people are not trying to work. In fact, they're trying to avoid work. And this is horrible for our culture. The Bible is pretty clear that if a person is just lazy and won't work, Now, it's not talking about somebody that is sick or somebody that is elderly and can't work. It's talking about somebody that has the ability to work and the opportunity to work, and they refuse to do it because they want somebody else to take care of them. That is laziness, and the Bible says they shouldn't eat. Now, that's a life lesson. If you get hungry enough, you're going to find something to do to get some food, right? And God will bless those efforts. So when we are blessed, God wants us to show that we trust him. And that's why God instituted this thing called the tithe. In the Old Testament, the tithe was the first 10% of whatever a person's labor produced. If it was a herd, the first 10% was brought uh, before God as an offering to God. If it was crops, the same would be true. The point behind this was it would reveal whether that person trusted in God. If I take the first 10% rather than wait to the end of the month and give God the scraps, that is revealing to God that I trust Him for the rest of it. God used those offerings to provide resources for the temple, for the synagogues, for the workers who served him. Those resources were used to benefit the community. They would help the widows and the orphans. And God was very serious about this. So much so that when people did not pay their tithes or offerings, God had some harsh words for them. He spoke these words through Malachi, the prophet in Malachi 3.8. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? in tithes and offerings. Now, friends, we may not be commanded to give a tithe in the New Testament. I personally believe that Jesus expected that. That's why it wasn't commanded. But we are taught to give in accordance to God's blessings. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, friend, if you want to give a gift that will please Him, cheerfully and wholeheartedly give Him a tithe of your income, and then offerings come after that. Show Him that you trust Him. Go out here and help support something like the Togo Christmas tree, 86 Hunger, or some of the other opportunities you have. Find a way to use your resources to be a blessing to others. That's what the Magi did. They brought gifts fit for a king. And the question you need to ask, and I need to ask, are my gifts fit for my King Jesus? Finally, the Magi risked their lives. And this makes us ponder the risks we have to take in our life. What risks do you make for your King? Now, the Bible tells us that the cost is to die to self, giving up our old life to live a new life in Christ. In John 3, 3, we read, Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. In 2 Corinthians 5:17, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Our baptism is a point where we die to our old self and we rise to a new life. We're buried with Christ and we rise as a new creation because the Holy Spirit indwells us now. In Romans 6, 3-7 we read, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into His death. We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... And so the cost in our life is to die to self, to set self aside and put Jesus on that throne. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German Christian theologian who himself was put to death because he stood up for Christ, spoke to this question, what does it cost to follow Jesus? He wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. But cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. It costs to follow Jesus Christ. But friends, it costs a lot more not to. Every day, we have to make a choice to die to self and live for Christ. When He is our King, He deserves our total loyalty. And that means we love nothing more than Jesus. In Luke 14, 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. That's basically saying that we love God more than anything else. Luke quoted that Old Testament law when he wrote in Luke 10:27, and these are the words of Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And James reminds us in James 4.4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity towards or against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. We have to choose Jesus. He's got to be on the throne more than anything else. John quoted Jesus twice in John 14.15, If you love me, keep my commands. And in John 15, 10, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. And so, friends, if you claim that Jesus is your King, well, He demands your loyalty and your devotion. That means to be willing to obey His commands. You choose Him over the world and all of its distractions. I think the wise men sacrificed time and resources, even risked their lives to find the king, and they worshipped him when they found him. And I wonder about us. We are on a journey of discovery. Our entire life, we are trying to figure out who is going to be king over our life. More often than not, we want to be the king. We want to rule, we want to control, we want to determine our fate. But hopefully, we will be open to finding the true king. And one day the journey will be over and then there will be eternal consequences for our choices. And at the end of the journey, we will find Jesus. One way or another, we will find him. The Bible says every knee will bow. Every tongue will proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. My question is, why not worship him now? Why not find him now? Why not bow before him today? Why not seek his will today? Let me close with this story I read about a missionary named Karen Watson who counted the cost of following Jesus. And that's why she left a letter with her pastor before she went to Iraq. She went there to provide humanitarian relief in the name of Jesus, but she was murdered while she was in that country simply because she was an American. The letter began, you're only reading this if I died. And it included gracious words to her family and friends and this simple summary of following Christ. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. Friend, in your search for Jesus, What are you willing to risk? What are you willing to give? What time are you willing to sacrifice? May I suggest that our King Jesus deserves our full devotion. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus here and for revealing your plan to people like the Magi. What a miraculous thing that they understood and knew and traveled so far And thank you for the example that they set for us in searching for Jesus. They gave their time. They gave their gifts. They risked their lives in their search. And I pray, Father, that we too may follow their example. And in so doing, that we might set an example for others. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.